The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus Fenstaden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, a couple quick points just before we get into our discussion today about U.S.-China global competition in Africa and elsewhere. I just want to talk about the debt issue with the Chinese very quickly because it's been an interesting past couple of weeks. Last week, the new Kenyan government that's coming into power indicated that they are going to approach China to ask, and I, I think you covered this story, correct me if I'm wrong here, they want a 50-year deferral on some of their loans, is that correct? They want to extend the, the payment um, window to 50 years rather than 20 years as it is at the moment, I think. Okay. So they're going to Beijing to ask for that. Again, it has not been submitted as far as we know. This was kind of, this topic came up in the confirmation hearings for the new cabinet. And so this is one, one of the ideas that they have. Now, what's interesting about this, keep this in mind, later this week when Pakistan's prime minister is going to head to Beijing and over the weekend, the finance minister submitted a request to the Chinese ambassador asking for a rescheduling of $6.3 billion of loans. So it looks like there's some momentum now for developing countries to go to Beijing to ask for some rescheduling. Now, it's interesting also because I noted today in our newsletter that all of these folks should kind of keep an eye on what happened in Ecuador a couple of weeks ago where the Chinese rescheduled $3.2 billion of debt. So it looks like, Cobus, that there is some flexibility. But I guess what's interesting here, and I'd like to get your take on this, is that more developing countries appear to have the confidence now, or at least the need and the urgency to go to China and say, you got to help us out and you got to do something. But at the end of the day, there's no guarantee that the Chinese are going to agree. Yes, I think that's that's the real the real rub. Um, I think to a certain extent, what we're seeing the next the next phase um, of China's growing international influence. You know, kind of it, it it stepped into a space. You know, providing funding to to levels that that equal the world banks um, in, in in some regions. And now it's at the next phase of that of that logic. Like the World Bank, it now has to deal with with kind of people in in debt distress. You know, so so it's going to be very interesting to see how China deals with this new role because you know it 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 was part and parcel of the role to begin with. I mean, there was no one I think in the Chinese you know finance ministry who can legitimately be surprised. You know, kind of that that there is going to be debt issues. I mean, the scale of it, you know, on the back of 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 COVID and Ukraine crisis, I think that's a surprise for everyone but you know but but in terms of i, I think it's it's a it, they would have to have been some form of this process you know kind of in their future considering how aggressively i stepped into that space so here we are you know kind of, so it's going to be very very interesting to see how how it how they deal with it and i think how they deal with it is going to really set the tone for for the next decade of china global south interaction and one other thing to keep in mind on this debt issue is the timing right now is that the Pakistanis, the Kenyans, and others are going to China right in the midst 
of a massive political upheaval within the administration in Beijing. That is, Chinese President Xi Jinping has just been coronated again for another five-year term. He's making all sorts of changes to the leadership. A lot of the agencies that are going to be involved in any of this debt restructuring are going to be impacted by all this leadership and these political movements that are going on right now. So it's entirely possible that this is not a good time for Chinese domestic politics for people to be going asking for these kinds of changes. It will just be interesting to see if things don't get lost in the political shuffle and in the bureaucracy until things settle down. Think of it a little bit like after a new president comes into office for the first time and he's bringing in new secretaries and new cabinets and a new administration directors. It just takes time to get up to speed. And that's kind of what's going on right now in China. So this may be impacted by that. But one of the things that we're starting to see emerge from the leadership changes in Beijing is a much greater focus on the United States and to some degree focus on relations with Europe. And that mirrors what's happening in the United States as well. Earlier this month, back in mid-October, the United States launched its new national security strategy that put competition with China as the top priority. In fact, here's a quote from the NSS. It says, America's most consequential geopolitical challenge is China. And in fact, China, and it goes on to say, and I'm quoting here, is the only competitor with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to do it. Beijing has ambitions to create an enhanced sphere of influence in the Indo-Pacific and to become the world's leading power. So there you have it from the national security strategy here. One interesting point, Cobus, that I want to highlight, and this is from Ryan Haas, who made this point over at the Brookings Institution in Washington. Back in the 2017 NSS, the U.S. treated Russia and China almost as interchangeable threats. Now the strategy notes that they pose, quote, different challenges. And the strategy says, and again, I'm going to quote here from it, just to make sure you guys have the original language, that the strategy says it's going to prioritize maintaining an enduring competitive edge over the PRC while constraining a profoundly dangerous Russia. So some distinction between the Chinese and the Russians. Now, Chinese analysts, for their part, were not very impressed with the new national security strategy. Again, not a huge surprise. We're not expecting anybody in Shanghai and Beijing to kind of go, wow, this is great. In fact, uh, let me read you a few quotes from the staff over at the Shanghai Institute of International Studies. Now, if you're not familiar with SIIS, this is one of China's premier foreign policy think tanks, and their comments on the NSS were translated by Thomas uh, de Garetz Geddes for his new Substack newsletter, Sinification. It's absolutely fantastic. I highly recommend that you go out and sign up for it. He's basically translating all sorts of primary source, academic materials, policy papers, things that we really need right now to be able to understand what's going on. I'll put a link to Sinification in the show notes for you. But let me give you three quotes that Thomas identified. This is from Liu Zongyi, who's the Secretary General of the Center for China-South Asia Cooperation at SIIS. He says, and I quote, The Biden administration's new national security strategy is a summary of its domestic and foreign policies of the past two years with relatively little that is new. Okay, it's interesting. Then there's from Wang Guoxing, who is a Distinguished Research Fellow at SIIS. This report is merely a summary and refinement of the national security strategy implemented by the Biden administration since it took office. So again, he's saying nothing new. And one last one from Su Liu Qiang, who is the Assistant Research Fellow 
at SIIS's Institute for International Strategy. He says the new national security strategy largely inherits the strategic vision of the past two U.S. administrations, with its strategic objective still being to preserve U.S. hegemony. So, Kobus, there you have it. The Chinese not impressed with it. Nothing new. This is just an intensification of the competition with China. But it does show how both the United States and China are directing their foreign policies to be more focused on each other. The key question, though, is, is the United States up to the task? And I say this is the key question is because there was a fascinating article that came out, some incredible reporting from Nahal Tusi, who is Politico's senior foreign affairs correspondent. Now, remember, this is from Politico, okay? Politico is kind of like the Washington Bible inside the Beltway. This is not radical, anti, you know, anti-U.S. critical stuff. And she wrote this. I just love the headline here. Here's the headline. Frustrated and powerless in fight with China for global influence. Diplomacy is America's biggest weakness. Again, I'll put the link to that article in the show notes. I'll spare you all of the details For regular listeners of the show, a lot of what she says echoes some of the comments that I've been saying for a long time, even that I've been getting a little bit of criticism for over the years. So I feel a little bit vindicated when she kind of said some of these things. But basically, it talks about how America's political system is not optimized for this fight, that the United States is not funding its diplomatic service the way that the Chinese are. It has fewer diplomats than what the Chinese do. We're not approving ambassadors to go into countries, and the policies themselves are not as refined as what the Chinese have. So, Kobus, very interesting moment in time right now where the two are facing each other, but it doesn't look like both have coherent strategies for the other. You know, this this is a very very kind of challenging time, I think, for for everyone, um, among others, because both of these global powers now seem totally committed to fighting the other. You know, and of course, you know that doesn't necessarily mean physically, but you know, it, it, no one is no one is ruling that out either. And you know, so so that we we do we do have this kind of like uh, it, it does feel like a moment of of tunnel vision on both sides and a kind of a you know a real kind of like narrow of the horizons on both sides and with that kind of then comes you know a, a lot of questions for me so, so, so as you say the, 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 the key question is whether is, is whether the US has these tools at, its, at you know at its disposal or whether it's its diplomatic core is you know is fit for purpose in, in, the, in this particular fight that's one big question the other big question for me and and this i admittedly i have to say is like i'm speaking here as a southerner rather than you know kind of obviously i'm not an american citizen is what is the the us and its allies real vision for the world beyond simply being in charge you know it's like you know what do, what do they see for the next 20 years 30 years 50 years you know, uh, you know, for 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 the for the rest of the world, that that as as we know, like is you know as as is by va- is vastly houses the the youngest part of the world's population, um, and and that that was a little bit missing for me. You know, kind of in the, the there's a lot of talk about values, right? Kind of coming both from the U.S. and from from Europe, like this. You know, values is now almost a cliche of foreign policy at the moment. Like values based foreign policy is, you know, I haven't really have ever seen it. 
defined satisfyingly, but like it's it's still it's you know everyone says it. But you know the the question then becomes like what are these values beyond the thing that that I think you know Josep Borrell, the 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 foreign policy head of the EU, recently said the quiet part out loud. You know with these very very criticized comments the way he he, he compared Europe to a garden and the rest of the world to a jungle that's 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 trying to kind of invade the garden. You know that kind of pulling up the drawbridge kind of logic i i feel that that is quite dominant you know with within like european and and american foreign policy at the moment and there's a similar aspect to it in china i mean china is in citadel mode like more than more than in decades but but still you know china has a bri it has all of this you know it has it has vested interests in engaging with the global south which is you know one of the things that i was thinking about while you were talking about the debt is that this the, in in some ways the global south has more power at the moment to to be a disruptor to chinese kind of closed inness from the world because all of the US and, and European pressure tends to reinforce what Xi Jinping is thinking about about the kind of the world anyway um you know so 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 you you the US effect the, the effect of, of of current US policy is is to kind of push China more inwards and that is what Xi Jinping wants to do anyway whereas the the global south keeps having like China has to keep extending itself outwards in order to keep dealing with the global south so at least there's that you know so, so I mean I'm rambling but, but the, the, the question I'm you know could like to return to is is what is the global vision that's really driving this beyond just, oh, you know, we need to maintain control? Well, let's get a perspective on that and more on the competition between the U.S. and China and how it impacts the global south. Again, this is a topic that we said in the beginning of the year is going to be one that shapes the year. I'm going to rephrase that. It's not going to shape the year. It's going to shape the next generation, if not. I mean, this is this is a long-term fight. So we do need to deep dive into it every once in a while. And we had the opportunity to speak with Jake Werner, who's an historian of modern China and a research fellow at the East Asia program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He wrote a fascinating article for us back in the summer, How U.S.-China Cooperation Can Strengthen Democracy. He did that as part of his affiliation with the Boston University Global Development Policy Center. We had a chance to talk to him about the shortcomings in China's foreign policy towards the global south and the U.S. and also the U.S. as well and see how does this all shape out. Let's take a listen now to our interview with Jake Werner. Jake Werner, welcome to the show and a very good morning to you in Chicago. Yes, wonderful to be on the show. Thank you both, Eric and Kobus. It's wonderful to have you. We're a big fan of of your work. And, and, and again, you take a slightly contrarian view to many folks in the United States who think about U.S.-China competition. Before we get into your thoughts on the United States and China, particularly in this concept of a new, what some people are calling a Cold War, global competition, great power rivalry, let's first start with the United States. The Biden administration has been really promoting this idea of democracies and autocracies. And you're not a big fan of that framing. Let's start there and, and again, just get a better understanding of your understanding of that. Well, I think the, you know, let's let's start maybe by talking about what, what the Biden administration means when they say democracy, because part of part of what I'm arguing is that um, the, <clears throat> the concept of democracy that we bring into these conversations is, is really important and can have a decisive impact on our understanding of, of what we should do in terms of policy or, um, or politics. So the Biden administration has a pretty standard, I think, classical liberal definition of democracy that involves um, sort of specific limitations on what the government can infringe. So free speech, freedom of the press, um, free freedom of assembly. 
and then combined with periodic elections and the rule of law. All right, this is a this is a very sort of standard definition of democracy. What I'm arguing is that if if we bring a different, a, rather than a formal definition of democracy, a substantive definition of democracy to this question, then that will sort of change the framework with which we view all of these questions. And so I think that the, the what the Biden administration is doing with the autocracy versus democracy framing is trying to provide something that will tie together different parts of the of the of its foreign policy uh, orientation. And I think the problem is that uh, the outcome of a lot of these policies is just going to be to undermine uh, the prospects for democracy rather than strengthen them. So we can we can sort of go more into that analysis if you want. You know, in, in, in this article, you um, you make the point that, that many of the, the world's advanced or rich democracies and many of the world's poor democracies have over, of, over the last few decades kind of trended, you know, towards more kind of autocratic directions or, you know, kind of, or there's been a, a kind of a global um, erosion in, in, in democracy. What, what, are, what are some of the factors, this kind of large trans-historical factors that, that you see kind of active in, in that trajectory, both in the rich world and in the global south? Yeah, yes. And actually, I would add um, China and other authoritarian countries to that mix as well and say that uh, around the world, regardless of whether you have elections or not, um, societies have been moving in a more authoritarian direction, and I and I want to I want to make that claim fairly broadly, authoritarian not in the sense of um, not just in the sense of political system, but also broadly in, in the sense of social relations. So how men and women relate to each other, how uh, the dominant culture relates to ethnic or racial or religious minorities, um, how people sort of think about the relationships between powerful people and weak people, both politically but also in the workplace, in, in culture. All of these things have been sort of moving in an authoritarian direction in uh, countries around the world. And the argument that I'm making is that ultimately this comes out of the fact that we live in a single global system that has been uh, increasingly dominated by free markets and the consequences of free markets, which include increasing corruption, inequality, and popular insecurity. And one of the responses, one of the, and unfortunately the most robust response to this, has been people people seeking refuge in um, <clears throat> communal identities or religious or racial identities that seem to offer them some security and some stability, both in terms of their sort of their their practical position, their material position, opportunities, job opportunities, or sort of practical status issues, and but also stability in terms of how they think of themselves in a world that increasingly seems out of control. Um, so I think that this is this is an important reason that the autocracy versus democracy framework confuses the question. Um, actually, authoritarianism is broadly construed is, uh, is, a, is a growing problem in the United States, in a place like Brazil, in a place like Poland, in a place like India, a place like Indonesia, all of these places, and, and also in a place like China and Russia. These places have all become Authoritarian politics has become more powerful in all of these places over the last 10 years. And I think if we want to try to reverse that, to, to democratize societies around the world, we really need to understand the roots of that um, and address those roots in, in the nature of the particular kind of globalization that we've been experiencing over the last 30 years, rather than, rather than just throw on, throw on slogans. You know, during the Soviet Cold War, there was this idea, and, and the Johnson administration really pushed forward with this idea that the United States needed to make advancements on civil rights in order to be strong at home so that it could set an example for 
other countries overseas in this model, you know, to contrast with what the Soviets were doing. And at the same time, we have adopted that same kind of rhetoric in terms of talking about how we are democracy. Yes, every time, and we've mentioned this on the show a number of times, how my frustration is that Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the United States uh, Ambassador to the UN, or Secretary of State Antony Blinken, will have this one throwaway line in all these speeches. Well, we're not perfect, and we're working on our own democracy. And then they'll go on for the next 45 minutes to talk about how wonderful democracy is, when in fact— Two out of the last four presidents in the United States were not elected by the popular vote. We have fallen in Freedom House's index on press freedom. I mean, by so many metrics, the United States has fallen dramatically. Our wealth inequality is now on par with many Central American countries. And in terms of African-American wealth and advancement has been rolled back to the 1960s levels. And so my point here, I guess I'm confused a little bit, and I'd love your take on this, is that how does the United States frame democracy versus autocracy when, in fact, the Republican Party in the United States doesn't really wholeheartedly believe in democracy, and yet it still goes out there to pretend as if there's no problems. There's nothing to see here, folks. Don't pay attention to what's going on at home. And so this notion of being strong at home in order to be strong abroad seems broken. Yeah, I think that, I think that certainly is the, the impression around the world. Um, I, I do want to be fair to the Biden administration. I, I have a lot of reservations and critiques of some of the Biden administration's policies, but I think they are—they really are trying to to reverse um, some of these problems in the United States. They're trying to take practical action, practical legislative action to to put in place uh, economic policies to change the way the economy works. Um, to <clears throat> to. But, but this is deeper than the Biden administration. This is something much more endemic in the U.S. political culture than just one administration. Well, but, I, you know, I, I think I, – I, let me put it this way. I think the, the Biden administration has a strategy to change the structural forces driving undemocratic currents in the United States. And I think for the most part the strategy is sound at least at the policy level, whether at the political level, I think there is a bigger problem that there really needs to be a more aggressive set of that. There's, there's a mix here. I think on, on the one hand, the administration has been not as aggressive as it could be um, in sort of laying out a vision of what of what a truly democratic United States would look like. And then on the other hand, there has also been some some really un- unfortunate pandering to some of these undemocratic impulses, in particular around um, immigration and and issues of nationalism and aggressive foreign policy moves, and I think th- and this is where China comes into the picture. That when when the United States goes out and says we're pursuing democracy, and the main way that we're pursuing democracy is that we're going to to contain China. You know, they don't put it that way, but but sort of the the actions um, sort of speak louder than than the words. When when they say that that is their strategy externally. That's also part of an internal strategy. The, the idea is we're going to rally the uh, American people behind a shared foreign enemy, and that's going to overcome some of these divisions. I think that is, that's a really a really misguided, uh, really misguided strategy to this problem. That's that's going to lead that's going to strengthen the undemocratic impulses within the United States um, because it's precisely uh, it's precisely the nationalist, racist, ethnocentric. Um, supremacist parts of the United States that will will gain the most from having a, uh, an aggressive confrontation with the foreign enemy. So I, I think there's there's a real mix here. I want to give 
credit to the administration for for tackling some of these problems in a way that has not been true of 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 earlier Democratic administrations in addition to Republican administrations. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, I think there is uh, there is a, a really deeply flawed aspect of this strategy uh, that tries to use nationalism to recreate social cohesion in, in the country. I think that's really going to backfire in, in very damaging ways. If we could shift the the conversation slightly or broaden it slightly uh, to to include China, you know, we we're coming up to the the ten year anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative, and you know, over the last ten years, uh, you know, the, the, there's different ways of, of of framing this this expansion of Chinese global global influence, and you know, if if one speaks with with many mainstream American stakeholders, they they tend to frame it as this kind of global rollout of of either of authoritarianism or as or of you know kind of the weakening of or attempts to weaken international democratic standards and and to to bolster autocrats from a global south position there is you know this is a different view of china's global global rise and the kind of opportunities it offers the global south particularly around issues like for example one of the things that you point out this the the promotion of development as a human right is is you know is being being china's a strong proponent there and then also reform of the international system you know which ie weakening the the, the central centralized control of of western western powers over the the global system which tends to get quite a quite a kind of positive response in in the global south if from from your perspective you know kind of how has China's global rise and, you know, like along initiatives like the Belt and Road Initiative, how have they affected democracy globally? Like, you know, kind of is like, where does it shake out to more towards these kind of critiques of China or more towards kind of global south perspectives of China? Um, I, I tend to think that the, the anti-democratic currents that have been growing over the last 10, 10 to 15 years are largely driven internally. And if there is an audience for, for Chinese initiatives that, uh, that are critical of the kind of formal de- democracy agenda, if there's an audience for, for that out there, it's because of internal developments in countries in the global south. And, and that is where I would, the, the focus of, of trying, to, uh, trying to reverse this 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 wave of, of democratic erosion. Um, so I, I think that I think part of what's going on in D.C. is that people are very anxious about the very real erosion of democracy that had had seemed to be going. You know, there was this this narrative, particularly strong in D.C., but that was quite widespread from the 1990s that we had we had entered the end of history, that liberal democracy and free markets would would reign forever. There were no real competitors anymore. It was just sort of moving more and more towards um, towards the perfect realization of, of these perfect social arrangements. Um, and, and people, you know, that, that really was the dominant ideology within the foreign policy establishment, within the political elite in the United States. Um, and the kind of crumbling of that entire narrative uh, since the 2008 global financial crisis, that has been really disorienting and, and really profoundly dismaying for people in the American leadership. And I think that one of the ways that they've been dealing with that is trying to find kind of a symbolic figure who stands for all of these reversals. And it has been China. China is sort of the symbol that captures all of the threats to the United States, whether those be sort of in terms of economic competitiveness, whether those be in terms of the ability to maintain hegemony over the global system, and, and also ideologically, because, because China has a very forthright, undemocratic, formally undemocratic political system. I think that that has 
led to a really high degree of sensitivity over China's activities globally around these issues, sort of around like standard setting and uh, measures in the UN. These are, these are the sort of things that the American leadership never really paid much attention to until China got involved in them. And, and the reason, I think that the practical effects of these things are relatively minor, but because the sensitivities are so high, that leads to a really significant overreaction amongst, um, amongst policymakers and, and leaders. Um, on, on the other side of things, you know, China's, <clears throat> China's leadership for trying to, to democratize uh, extremely unequal uh, hierarchy of nations and sort of hierarchy of political and military power in the global system. Um, I, you know, I think China makes that rhetoric, China poses that rhetoric in a really effective way, in, in a way that gains a lot of support within the global south. Again, it's not clear what the practical impact of this has been. Um, these are things that China has been saying uh, about democratizing international institutions for for about 20 years now. Um, and there, there hasn't really been much of a payoff aside from China's growing influence, right? Which, which has, um, which has kind of split authority in the global system. So I, I think overall, I think China, China's impact has been relatively small and, and number one and number two, the, we need to look uh, for solutions to, to the problems we're seeing with democratic erosion elsewhere. It's not it's not China that is causing this, even if China can sort of effectively be used as a symbol of everything that's happening. It's not China that is causing this. The, 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 the problems are deeper and they're internal to individual countries, but they're also part of this global system that everyone has been integrated into that has led to a really high degree of uh, inequality and insecurity um, that that is, is creating a lot of discontent that's finding expression in authoritarian politics often. Yours is a very unusual point of view in a place like even Chicago or Washington, D.C. I, I have to be honest with you. I have never heard anybody articulate it that way. And and I just let me just see if I understand what you're saying, that you feel that the United States is overstating the threat to American supremacy in the international order, that the United States and China and other external powers don't have as much influence in terms of promoting democracy or autocracy within an individual country in the global South, because it's that something in indigenous to them and that the effect or impact and, you know, the tangible outcomes of China's growing presence in the international system or creating alternate international organizations like the AIIB or the Belt and Road or things like that have been marginal at best. Is that a summation, an accurate summation of, of kind of where you're coming from? Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that China's impact has been marginal. I, but I would say that it has not challenged the existing system in a fundamental way. So like if you take the AIIB or, or better, if you take the Belt and Road, which fits less cleanly into the existing multilateral development landscape, there has been a really significant impact on a number of different countries, on the possibilities for people who have benefited from development investment, on, um, on you know, on elite politics, on popular politics that, that reacts to these changes. There has been a huge impact from China's involvement in the outside world. But has it, has it undermined the basic system? Has it changed the basic uh, organization of the global system? No, not not in any any strong way. Uh, but but what what is in process of changing that is the United States' response to that sense that there's a competitor out there that we need to uh, that we need to contain, 
And that competitor is the same thing as the erosion of democracy in the global system, the reversal of all of the all of those hopes for the 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 rise of liberal democracy and free market economies um, that we thought had ended history. Um, the the U.S. response of hostility towards China and China's response of hostility to, to those measures that is in danger of changing the global system in in profoundly deleterious ways um, that that would have a sort of shattering impact on the entire world. So that's one point. The the the, the second. The second response to, to your summation there, yes, I am arguing that, that if democracy is being is eroding, we need to look first to what's happening within those countries, that if there are external actors who are involved with this, the only reason those external actors are having any traction on this issue is because they're finding an audience within that society for what they're pushing. So, so for example, the um, like China's authoritarian management of the internet. Uh, the reason that that is attractive to people in specific countries is because of what's going on in those countries. And uh, by attacking China over this, that doesn't fix the problem. We have to fix the problem at its root. We need to address the disease, not its symptoms. But that said, domestic politics in all these countries are shaped by their integration within the global economy. And the global economy is, I think, ultimately what we need to look for, look to for the disintegration of all of the the trajectory of democratic advance, liberal de- democratic advance that we had seen uh, up till uh, 2008. It's, it's since 2008. It's since the the disorder and disarray that was introduced by the economic crisis and the failure of uh, free market globalization to revive itself that uh, that all of this has sort of cascaded out in ways that destabilized things that that people in the United States and also people in China had sort of taken for granted. There was this expectation that we were all moving in a particular direction. And everyone has had to rethink those assumptions in, in, the, in particular in the last 10 years when it became clear that things weren't just going to go back to the way that they were before the crisis. And I think around the world, the, the, the conclusion often has been that the only way to address the social disorder that's coming out that is, is sort of building up um, is is through authoritarian measures. Um, I don't think that's the only response. I think there are other responses that, that could potentially revive democracy. Uh, but, uh, but trying to organize democracy through great power conflict, uh, I think is going to be extremely counterproductive because international conflict tends to feed authoritarian tendencies. But those are very contrarian views among American policymakers, think tanks, scholars, what kind of reaction do you get, you know, when you're at conferences, dinner parties, and whenever you're starting to talk about these things? I'm just, I'm super curious because, again, these are very much antithetical to most of the conventional thinking about China today. Yes, no question. But uh, I think it's important to recognize that the conventional thinking on China today is quite recent. It's really only in the last five years and even in the last three years that this has sort of come together as a kind of monolithic consensus about about the danger that China poses to America and American values. So these things can change quite quickly. The problem is sort of opening up a crack in what has become, you know, as I say, a monolithic view of the threat of China. And for that, I, I think you need to look to other, other currents outside of D.C. That it, it is, like, as you say, that the, the, the audience, you know, just as I say the, that you need, a, you need to find an, an audience uh, in order to make your ideas 
um, have some some sort of hold in the real world. Um, I'm not finding that audience. I have not been finding that audience in D.C. Uh, to a great extent recently. But that doesn't mean that there aren't political currents out there that uh, that will listen and and will uh, will pursue a different strategy on these questions. Um, there are people in on the Hill. There are people. Um, in think tanks that that have serious reservations about the the kind of rush into a into two different competing great power blocks, there are people in think tanks, and, and I think really importantly, there are people out in the country that who who, who are not political professionals, policy professionals, um, who just don't buy the the approach that has really taken hold, hold in D.C. So there, there, there are different approaches that are available that, that could be built out, that could become powerful politically. It's a question of trying to organize those, those the politics for that. Um, you know, one of the wild cards in, in all of this discussion is, is the climate club. And, you know, it's because on the, on the one hand, one sees, um, one sees still attempts to try and, and to try and integrate all of, or, or to deal with all of the, all of the, like the, the different kind of like whack-a-mole kind of crises jumping up and under the, the wider umbrella of climate collapse in the current global system. You know, so for example, there's been some scattered calls following the, the these kind of massive floods in in Pakistan you know where an inter, like a third of the country has been has been inundated there's been some scattered calls for for climate reparations for example to Pakistan but it hasn't really reached any kind of serious critical mass and in in, in instead we, we we keep kind of seeing discussions within the frame of IMF debt reform or you know kind of re different kind of debt renegotiations and what is China going to do and, and, and so on and so on there's at the moment not yet a moment in the climate crisis where it starts upending global systems um, but you know that that moment is coming and probably sooner than we expect so um, at the same time we're also seeing you know in the wake of of, uh, of US um, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan we saw the the China withdrawing from from climate cooperation uh, with the United States and the the, the 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 potential use of, of of climate cooperation as a form of kind of geopolitical you know bickering. Um, so I was wondering how you see this developing over the over the next decade or so. Like you, you know, kind of like what role do you foresee like kind of the, the increasing kind of climate collapse playing in these issues around the, this this kind of contestation between democracy and autocracy and the different the different kind of like ideas we have of of the global system yeah great question and i think uh the it should be the occasion for for some really serious self-reflection on on what we're doing as we get as we sort of drive deeper into the the era of great power conflict because it's it's very hard to to imagine an effective response to the climate crisis uh, that does not involve the United States and China working very closely together. You know, I'm not. I'm not sure that the uh, suspension of climate, the climate dialogue that China imposed in response to the Pelosi Taiwan visit. I'm not sure that that is going to have any serious practical effects, given given how dysfunctional the U.S.-China discussion already was prior to that. But obviously, that, that sort of takes this escalatory spiral towards confrontation one step further and every step further we take it the the harder it is to find a way out of it in terms of the the impact on the global system of the disasters that are coming or that are already here but that, that will mount because of climate change um, I, I worry very much that that we're we're placing ourselves we're sort of setting up a framework 
within which those disasters will be managed in one of the least humanely possible imaginable ways. It would namely, we're going to take care of our people and we're going to try to push all of the negative consequences onto other people, people that we don't care about or people that we think of as our enemies. And that essentially means, you know, leaving the people who are least responsible for the climate crisis uh, exposed to the elements when the elements are becoming massively, massively more deadly. So I'm not I'm not sure. Well, that- that's what we've done to date, by the way, which is why there's perfect air quality in San Francisco or not perfect, but better and crappy air quality here in Vietnam. I mean, they've been doing that for decades. That's kind of what's been going on is that the the North has outsourced their production and their dirty uh, factories and all that to poor developing countries and they get to enjoy great air and we don't. Yes, I mean, that's certainly true. Um, of course, then we're seeing some consequences to that that are that were unexpected to do with the erosion of the manufacturing base in the United States and, and the, the sense that we've lost all of the good jobs that were associated with that. We're, we're losing the kind of military capacity that that, that gave us. Um, so it's, it's, you know, there, there are always unexpected consequences to these, these kinds of movements, but I take your point that the the principle essentially is, um, you know, we're going to do what's good for our people and, uh, sort of shove all the trash onto other people. And I think it's important, it's important to highlight that, you know, that's, that's sort of, that's sort of what nation based political representative systems are designed to do, right? Like the constituencies that the Biden administration is responsible to, do not include people who are not American citizens. On the other hand, that can lead to really perverse consequences that undermine the interests of the American people as well, because it, it really is in the interest of the American people for for the rest of the world to thrive. There, there is a really desperate need for growth in the global economy to, to provide demand for American exports, to, to reduce just the instability that is only just getting started and has already um, caused really negative reactions in, in, in domestic politics in the United States around issues like refugees. It really is in the interest of, of the American people that the rest of the world be stable and thriving. You know, often the political incentives are to respond to immediate, immediate problems in the, in the most quote-unquote practical way, which, which means the easiest way to get some sort of political response cobbled together. Um, and that can really undermine the ability to to come up with a, a longer term, uh, much more positive solution to a set of problems if, if, the, if the simple response is, is just like scapegoating other countries and, and not making the investments, uh, not creating the like, institutional capacity for a solution that would work for everybody. Sticking with Cobus's theme about looking 10 years into the future, one of the themes that we're picking up here in Vietnam is this desire for the United States to really decouple from China. We've been hearing about the decoupling for a long time, but boy, oh boy, are companies and American government stakeholders serious about it. And that's one of the reasons they want to come to Southeast Asia. So when you look at the future 10 years from now, take out that shiny crystal ball to look into the future. Do you see the emergence of these blocks that people are talking about, that there's going to be a block that the United States trades with because it's technologically compatible with United States standards on transparency, and there's going to be a Chinese block, mostly in the global south, that is more compatible with its way of doing things? Or do you think that, too, is potentially overblown or misguided? I think the at one level, that's, that's the direction that the logic of political developments are pushing. 
But on the other hand, that process of disintegrating U.S. and Chinese supply chains and, and of course, all the other very complex ways in which each society is embedded within the other, that process would be so destabilizing and difficult that I think it's going to be very messy. It is, it is moving in that direction. And the more it moves in that direction, the more that, that trajectory is reinforced. Because in part, because the less connection the two societies have, the harder it is for them to see their commonalities and their shared interests. Um, But also in part, because the process of decoupling is going to introduce increasing instability that will be blamed on the other side um, and will sort of increase the support for doing something decisive about the other side. That's certainly the direction that it's that it's currently going in. And that process will tend to reinforce itself. But on the other hand, I want to keep I always want to keep open the possibility that there's another direction out there, that just because we're going in one direction now doesn't mean that's the direction we're going to go forever. That should be one of the lessons we take from the end of the end of history. We were, we really were going in that direction for quite a while in ways that made that narrative seem plausible. And then the whole thing just reversed. It just went 180 degrees in the other direction all of a sudden. And if we don't sort of look at the underlying causes, right? Like a a lot of political analysis happens in a very superficial way. It just looks at what's happening on the surface. It doesn't look at kind of the structural drivers of what produces what we see on the surface. If we don't take that deeper view, then we're just going to infinitely project forward the current trends. And I think that that's always wrong. So at this point, it looks like decoupling is sort of on the way. It's going to be, it's going to be much messier than, than I think the enthusiasts are expecting. But that messiness itself is going to reinforce the process. But on the other hand, again, there is an, another direction that we could take. There are social constituencies for that direction. And we don't know yet how it's going to turn out. Um, it's, a question, it's a question that we will, you know, we all of us collectively will decide what direction we want to take. There are two articles that, are, that Jake wrote that I want to point everybody to. Number one is on our website at ChinaGlobalSouth.com, how U.S.-China cooperation can strengthen democracy. These are not ideas that you'll hear very often. I mean, just that that headline alone should shock some people. How U.S.-China cooperation. Can you imagine the U.S. and China cooperating? Okay, you go to our website. Uh, by the way, that is a free article. It's not behind the paywall, so anybody can read it. I'll put that in the show notes. And then if you have a subscription to Foreign Affairs, does America really support democracy or just other rich democracies? Jake, thank you so much for taking the time to to join us. We really appreciate it. Jake Werner is a historian of modern China and a research fellow in the East Asia program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He joins us today from Chicago. Jake, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Uh, I am on Twitter, um, at J.W.D. Werner. That's W-E-R-N-E-R. And yes, please feel free to, to get in touch with me. Uh, through Twitter or or by email. Fantastic. We'll put uh, a link to those articles along with Jake's Twitter handle in the show notes. Jake Werner, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Great to be on the show, Eric and Kobus. Kobus, Jake really forces us, especially someone like me, who is instinctively negative about the trend in geopolitics, to think a different way. So he says that there is the option that things will change quickly and fast, just the same way that we've pivoted into this mindset on China, 
um, again, built up over decades. And really, in the Trump administration, it was a hard pivot. But here we are. And at the same time, things can change. Now, I also think things can change for the worse, just as fast as they can change for the better. But I think it's really important for us to have the mental flexibility and dexterity not to get caught in this pathway that says intellectually, this is the way it's going to be, which is decidedly negative of where we're going. That said, the trend lines aren't very encouraging right now, whether it's on climate, whether it's on decoupling, whether it's on confrontation. Again, we've talked about on many occasions the amount of military hardware that's just a few thousand kilometers from me here in Southeast Asia, in the South China Sea, is just terrifying. That being said, it's really important, especially I'm saying this out loud for myself, to constantly remind myself to be flexible and open enough to adapt and not necessarily to see the conventional wisdom as the definitive truth. Yes, I, I think so too. I think it's really important to to keep to keep discussing new ideas, and even if those ideas are you know seem you know kind of completely out of left field, um, you know many of those have traditionally or have have historically kind of started like that and then became became large movements. So so it's important to do it. I think it's also really important to to complicate and and I think refuse the 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 framing of this geopolitical competition that that both that mainly the United States and China try to put on the competition. You know, to, to try like like it, and it goes down to such uh, to such basic things of like of refusing to to accept the assumption that the two are so fundamentally different. Um, you know, kind of because because that that is the the bedrock bedrock of of the discourse that comes both from Washington and Beijing that we are fundamentally different from these. You know, from the other one. They're not really. They're very, very similar in many ways. Um, you know, so so in that way, you know, kind of, I think, I think, you know, refusing these kind of assumptions and then also locating kind of thinking from the global south becomes really important. Um, okay, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to interrupt you there. I can't let you say that they're similar. I think I know what you're talking about, but I have a feeling that a lot of people listening to this are going to recoil when they hear that you're suggesting that the United States and China are similar, particularly in, in politics. Can you expand on what you mean when you say they're similar? Well, they both they both are fixated by by global influence, while their 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 kind of core strategic thinking is really fixated on the nation state. Right? Um, they both they both um, have very strong ideas about you know, for example, about in like strengthening nation state boundaries. Right? Kind of and having having the strengthening of nation state boundaries override many other many other kind of like you know similarly important issues. They're both hydrocarbon based to a crazy level, and and hydrocarbon strategy ends like like remains the bedrock of of how they relate to the rest of the world in in fundamental ways. They they're both driven by by very strong domestic media constituencies that both like tend frequently tend to to lean hard into nationalist discourse at moments of crisis, which then kind of pulls the the, the governments in those in those both of, in both Beijing and Washington in in, in right to direction sometimes. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Right, kind of like they both have they both have problems with 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 ethnic minorities within with, within their borders, um, even though they both put out very strong narratives of of 
you know, kind of 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 their own citizenship being somehow better than other countries' citizenship, or more the the, the exalted version of what citizenship could mean, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's, there's there's many many overlaps. Not least because because China was very influenced by the United States, you know. So so like China has been in conversation with the United States for a long time, you know, like going back as far as, as Mao. It's very interesting to see how Mao himself was frequently, you know, kind of making these statements that you know that 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 one needs to learn from the United States, for example, or like, you know, and so on. Like, you know, I'm rambling now, but like the, you know, I, I think, I think like there's, there's really kind of fruitful kind of exploration in terms of how the two overlap rather than, you know, rather than assuming that they're so fundamentally different. Yeah, it's interesting because after living there for as long as I have and, and just being connected with the, cult, the culture for as long as I have, which is now going on four and four decades I see a lot of similarities like you, but on the on the cultural side of things. And this again, I can see eyebrows now just going, you know. You know, both the United States and China in many ways are very unforgiving societies. These are societies that if you fall down in society, you don't really get back up again. There is a almost no social safety net in either of these countries. And most people in both countries, and this is fascinating, think about this, Kobus. Most people in both countries live one healthcare disaster away from poverty. That's incredible to think about. Yeah, and, and I mean, and that's become starker in the United States over, over recent decades. N- not necessarily. China is is just as stark because the wealth inequities being what they are, uh, I in Shanghai I had wonderful healthcare, but that was a healthcare that was afforded only to the top five percent of the population. The vast majority of people in China save huge amounts of their income in order to really insure themselves against a health disaster when they get older, because the health system in the countryside or out in the second tier cities is nowhere near as strong. That affects the people in many ways, but it's so many. In so many ways, you're right. There are a lot of similarities between these two countries that get completely washed over in in the discourse. So that's just something to think about. I want to get your take on something that he said, which I thought was very interesting, and we don't spend enough time on this, that the authoritarian trends in many developing countries are really the product of those countries, and that agency needs to be afforded to those countries for making those changes. So when Nigeria banned Twitter, that wasn't because of the United States or China or anybody else. That was because of President Muhammadu Buhari and his decision to do that and political considerations that were made domestically. There's this arrogance, I find sometimes, from both the United States and China and Europe to many extent as well, that they have more influence and say on countries in the global south. Maybe it's back to the Cold War days where, you know, who lost country X? As if country X was, you know, somehow in our column or their column and it was someone's to lose, that possessiveness. I wonder if that's carrying over, but what was your take on that notion of changes, good, bad, are more domestically driven that have anything to do with great power competition or the outside world? 
Yeah, I, I tend to take Jake's, Jake's point that, you know, just because China, you know, like, for example, it, it, I think he, he, his point really shows the weakness of, of the China's exporting authoritarianism argument, right? Because because there's, there's very few countries where you can draw a direct line between, well, China, China, like, kind of sold this system to them and boom, look, now they're authoritarian. You know, very frequently, you know, those are those are internal internal dynamics. And, and I agree with you, it tends to, you know, it, it, it's very easy to flatten those dynamics. Dynamics, even when you're criticizing the influence of outside of outside um, forces, particularly then maybe. But at the same time, it's a it's a complex back and forth, right? Kind of because it's not like outside influence doesn't play a, a role. So, for example, you know, look look at look at South Africa and the way that that international companies like consultancies um, like McKinsey, for example, were very complicit in in maintaining maintaining certain you know kind of the rule of of, of certain governance and 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 messaging for those governments. So, you know, kind of, so in that sense, South African democracy, you know, kind of was affected by it, but it was affected by it in, 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 a, in a not so kind of, in not so easily one-to-one direction, right? Kind of, so recently we, we spoke with Joseph Asunka, the CEO of, of Afrobarometer, like big polling agency, which, which looks at, among others, like attitudes to democracy in, in various African countries. And he showed that 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 in in um, in almost all African countries that they that they poll, young people are increasingly over time more pro democracy. They're more, you know, they they, they may they may be despairing in terms of like what what this specific democracy is delivering to them but they're not they're not kind of doubting democracy itself the one the one exception to that is south africa where south africa like paragon of democracy like very celebrated democracy around the world yet the the faith of of, of young south africans in democracy have markedly declined over the last few years and so the role of mckinsey and other other such in transnational actors in that dynamic there definitely is a role there but it's difficult to to to, to you know, to 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 make a one-to-one, you know, kind of, you know, uh, you know, di- connection there or correlation. So you know, so, so or causation more specifically. So so in that sense, I think it's it's you know, kind of these countries. That the, the for me, uh, um, Jake's other point was 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 equally important. Is isn't that these countries are making these decisions, but they're making them in a context where they're embedded in a global economic system. You know, and a lot of these a lot of these choices only make sense in the complicated ways in which these not only the countries but the leaders themselves find themselves, you know, find themselves embedded in the economic system. You know, so so you know, obviously famously in Africa, you know, the, you, you occasionally have leaders where where they end up like you know, taking a whole bunch of wealth and moving them into Swiss bank accounts and you know, they are actors within a global economic system in the same way as their countries are, but their decisions pull in different directions, and one needs to take both local and international factors, you know, at, in, into account at the same time. Yeah, I think there's a case that can be made that the Chinese will bolster both authoritarian governments. That is, they'll give people like Yoari Museveni tools like Huawei that can be used to spy on dissidents like Bobby Wine. But at the same time, democracies in Africa, for example, love to work with the Chinese because they can deliver infrastructure at a much faster pace. And that, again, helps candidates run on re-election and it does bolster the democratic process. So cases can be made in you know on both sides of this, again, which makes the story that much more complicated. And I guess that's kind of where we want to leave our discussion. Again, we always say that we want you to leave our shows and even our newsletters and our writing and our reporting more confused than how you started. I mean, that is a consistent theme in a lot of our 
of our discussions. And I think today is another good example of that, that if you are really firm and ideological on your outlook on the Chinese or on the Americans to many respects, I think you're going to have problems. And Jake made a very good case for that. I hope that you'll go and take a look at the article on our website about how Jake laid out what the U.S. and China can do to strengthen democracy. It's a fascinating take. And again, he's a fascinating uh, you know, writer. I don't think a guy like this, Kobus, has a lot of friends in D.C. This D.C. is not a town that really welcomes diversity of thought in many respects. And his views, again, in many ways are antithetical to the conventional thinking, which is so healthy for D.C. I mean, you it's so healthy. I just wish we had the opportunity to speak with a Chinese equivalent of Jake. That would be fascinating. Somebody who really challenges the conventional thinking in Beijing. I'm not sure there is such a person right now in the current climate. It's a very risky thing to do, but that would be my dream to be able to find somebody who can do that. I think there are spaces within the within the Chinese system where there's less constraints actually on on the, some of these people. I do think, you know, uh, you know, in in you know, the, the the opportunities that I had to speak with with Chinese think tank people, frequently they they would have a lot of these kind of the, these ideas. But like increasingly, the system, the academic system in China, isn't necessarily like they're not necessarily killing those ideas or the expression of them. What what they're doing is is kind of taking it out of the public discourse. You know, kind of. So it becomes it comes with it, it happens within a state orbit that never moves into the public. Sphere. That's right. You so know, we would of, never so, be able so to we speak have no them. idea what the discussion is there. That's right. So we would never be able to speak with them, but they are discussing this amongst themselves. Yes, yeah, so that that's the impression I get. Well, that's unfortunate because it would be fascinating for all of us to be able to have a little sneak peek into that that discussion that they've had there. You know, the last time I was in China talking to think tanks was 2019, and I think it's really coarsened quite a bit and tightened up quite a bit. So I think the environment today and where they were in 2019, are, and where the U.S. was too, by the way, radically different places. So very interesting. Head is spinning right now with lots of ideas. We would love to have you join our community of readers and all of the great things that we're doing over on our site. If you would like to follow these conversations like we did with Jake and all of the ideas that we are putting out with our team across Asia, Africa, and the Middle East to bring you some of these contrarian, antithetical ideas to challenge your way of thinking, that's what we're trying to do every single day. No joke. That is exactly what we're trying to do. And we would love for you to join us Go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. You can try out our site for 30 days. See if you like it. If you don't, you can cancel it anytime. No problem. And you can let me know. I'd love to hear from you what you did and didn't like about it. You can reach me at eric, E-R-I-C, at chinaafricaproject.com. Or you can reach out to Cobus C-O-B-U-S, at chinaafricaproject.com. Let's leave our conversation there for now. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the show. Until then, for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at chinaglobalsouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com. Global